chapters later that this truth, when you know that truth, when you know this truth, and especially this truth in chapter 6, it's because it's so pivotal, uh, that truth will set you free. You know, when I was 14, that truth set me free. I grew up in a Christian home all of my life, um, did everything I could to stay home from church, you know, playing sick. My mom still stayed home with me and read the Bible to me, couldn't get away from it. Um, When I was 16, I had an event with the Spirit that changed my life, gave me such a desire to evangelize, I just felt like I had to tell everybody about Jesus. And so I had all kinds of gospel tracks that I just, I brought to school. I, I had this little folder and I kept them all in there and so during a study hall, during a lunch break, I would try and sit next to or across from someone, start a conversation with them and just say, hey, can you read this and just tell me what you think? And hardly ever would they say no. They would read it, and it's generally very short. You could read in just like two or three minutes. And then I'd ask them, so what do you think? And we would just have a conversation right there. Um, and, and God just really built that hunger and desire in me. When I turned 20, I mentioned to you last week, uh, so six years after I gave my heart to Christ, something happened in, in my heart in which I started entertaining doubts. I mean, I was totally sold out. I was still evangelizing uh, as much as I could at the University of Delaware, but I just started having these, these doubts, these questions. I was majoring in psychology and just surrounded with worldly junk. Um, and, you know, how do I know for sure there's a God? How do I know that Jesus really is the Jesus of the Gospels? How do I know? How do I know? And th- this, was, this was challenging, and it was frustrating for me. Just these little questions that would nag at me like a little dog nipping at your heels. It was frustrating. <laughs> but I want to tell you that from that time forward, God has just been doing over and over in my life circumstances that many of them were just so hard that God used these as experiences for me, experiencing specifically the truths of God's word, but most specifically experiencing God in this relationship. I want to ask you, what is a disciple to you? What is a disciple? We talked a little bit about it last week. A disciple is not just a learner. That's what the word means, learner. But a disciple was a follower. We're going to read today just how pivotal this chapter is, but many of his disciples, they didn't get it. We're going to have to look at why. And then the challenge is going to be for us, what do we do? Because they didn't want to follow him because of his hard teachings. And I'm going to tell you right now, right now, Jesus has some hard teachings. We're going to cover a few, but Jesus has some hard teachings. And our culture, for the most part, they can't bear with it. And so we're, we're, we are not set up in a culture that is right to, that, that's ripe to stimulate this kind of growth and passion to follow after Jesus and be a disciple and experience God. We live in a culture that does everything to undermine that and cut it out from under our feet. So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm just going to ask that the Spirit of God would teach us and just take this word and impart it into our hearts right now. Father, I just ask, could you just maybe put your hand or your hands on your heart? And just, I'm just asking for every single one of us, God, give give us a heart for Jesus, a heart for truth. And as your spirit speaks to our hearts tonight, spirit of God, you change us, you encourage us. 
to follow after you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. <clears throat> We're all on a journey. Even those who don't know Jesus yet, I believe they are on a journey and some of them, by God's grace, and I want to emphasize that God's grace, we're going to see that, are drawn to Jesus Christ and walk now in this new journey of following Jesus, believing and experiencing him fully. Now, I read most, I read all of the, well, I didn't read, I, I read most of the chapter last week. I'm going to read a good portion of it again from verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Hungry, never go hungry, never be thirsty. Verse 36. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this... The Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you heard me right. Sorry, I added that, by the way. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. Let me read that in a different way. My flesh is truly food, and my blood is truly drink. I'm sorry, I'm just going to pause there. He's not saying real food as in literal, physical food. That's not what is meant by the word real. It just means truly. Jesus is the true vine. He's not a literal vine, but he is the true vine. Okay. 
I'm going to come back to that a little bit later. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Truly, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Literally, who can hear it? Aware of this, his disciples were grumbling. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples. There's some of you disciples who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who the one of the twelve was later to betray him. And last week we talked quite a bit about Judas, that the father had given Judas to Jesus, meaning therefore that that Judas had truly come to Jesus, meaning he had believed in him. Not just like faked. But he had truly believed in Jesus. That's that's the power of the Father giving someone to Jesus. Because in John 17, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, Father, you have given them to me. And he counts Judas as one of them. I've not lost any of them except the son of lostness, destruction, Judas. We learned that Judas or rather that this scene here in John 6 takes place just prior to the Passover, which is one year to the day Jesus died on the cross. Okay? So it's just over a year. And at that point, Judas was gone. Jesus here calls him a devil. Just prior to this, the 12 had been sent out, And they had healed the sick. They had cast out demons. They had preached the gospel. Judas was one of them. Judas healed the sick. Now, I don't know if his troubles and if his moving away from God took place between being sent out or or, or being sent out and this feeding of the 5,000 that this teaching follows, or if it happened before the, Jesus sent the 12 out. We don't know. But Jesus does say in the Sermon on the Mount, many of you will say to me on that day, the judgment day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he's going to say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
I'm just saying Satan has his counterfeit miracles, church. Let's be aware of that. Very much so. Satan has his counterfeit miracles. But as we look at this chapter, I mean, Judas is already gone. I mean, he's like in left field spiritually. But this chapter I suggested two weeks ago, last week, and now today is a pivotal chapter in John. The first 11 chapters deal with Jesus' earthly ministry. From chapters 12 to the end of the book is Passion Week, starting from Saturday night to, well, Sunday morning, so about a week. Halfway through these 11 chapters, chapter 6 is this event. It's pivotal. Jesus first starts talking to the crowd, and they're curious. They follow Jesus from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. Why? Because they're curious. They have been fed bread, and they can't figure out how did Jesus do this. You can only stick so much bread up your sleeve. I mean, where did it all come from? So they they were curious but they weren't following Jesus because they truly believed who he was. This was a sign that pointed to who he truly was, and they weren't getting it. They were just following him because they were curious. And Jesus challenges them on this. Then they come to the second group. We find the second group actually in verse 41, this, the Jews. That's the second group. We have the crowd, we have the Jews, And they began to grumble. Why do they grumble? They grumble because Jesus had said that he had come down from heaven. How can a man come down from heaven? Valid question. They they, they hadn't heard about the, the virgin birth. They didn't understand when Jesus says, before Abraham was... I am. I'm going to unwrap that one in in a few weeks when we get there. That's chapter 8. But they didn't get it that Jesus was sent from the Father to this earth. They didn't get that. They weren't there in Genesis, excuse me, in John 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and explained this. The Son of Man came from heaven. And even as Moses lifted up the golden serpent or bronze serpent in the wilderness, so Jesus will be lifted up so that all who look to him, believe in him, will, be, will have eternal life. He, he wasn't there for that. Uh, the, the, the Jews weren't there for that. So they don't understand. How do you mean you were come down from heaven? Again, a little bit later, Jesus starts talking about the fact that if we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that just totally freaked them out. What are you talking about? This is cannibalism. Now, that's not mentioned in the text, but you know that this is what they're thinking. What are you, and we have to do this to have eternal life? Man, who are you? And it says right there in verse 52, it says, when the Jews, we're still on the second group, the Jews, began to argue sharply among themselves. So first they're grumbling. That's a sign of pride. Now they're arguing sharply amongst themselves. How can I give... They're arguing, how can this man give his flesh to eat? Then we come across the disciples. These are people that have been following him. Some of them for, I guess, two, two and a half years. Because we're about to, they're about to enter Jesus' last year of ministry on the earth. And it says that 
They just didn't get it. This was a hard teaching. And as a result, verse 66, it says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then he turns to the twelve, the fourth group. So we have the crowd, we have the Jews, we have the disciples who've been following him for some time, and now we have the twelve. Now, that includes Judas. And Jesus asks them a very defining question. I'm going to suggest that this chapter is very pivotal in showing us that in this last year of Jesus' ministry, the, the persecution, the, the offense that the Jews had with Jesus only increased and his enemies increased in number. Chapter, I'm going to go through this quickly. So chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews were there, excuse me, the Jews there were waiting to take his life. Verse 30, it says this, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Verse 43, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Chapter 8, verse 20. It says this, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Can you feel the divisiveness of Jesus? The desire for people to kill him. Verse 59 says this, after he said, before Abraham was born, I am, At this, they picked up stones to stone him. This hadn't happened yet until now. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Chapter 9, verse 22. Concerning the blind man that Jesus healed, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. (coughs) You know, talk to our son who who Jesus, this man healed. You know, we're not going to vouch for him. (laughs) They said that because they were afraid of the Jews. For already, the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Skipping down to verse 34, at this they replied, that is, the Pharisees, the Jews, replied to the man who was blind that Jesus had healed, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So he was kicked out of the synagogue. Verse 34. Oh, I I just read that, sorry. Chapter 10, verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. We could go on and on. Chapter 11 is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Chapter 12 says now they wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus by Passion Week. Because so many were believing in Jesus because of Lazarus' resurrection. And so we see this opposition against Jesus developing more and more and more. Jesus did not come to placate people, church. He didn't come to preach some mamby-pamby truth. You know, decide on your own. Your truth is as good as my truth. No, he came and he spoke truth and people hated him for it. 
And people in our generation to this day will hate Jesus because he speaks truth. And I'm going to challenge this church. If we're true followers, if we're true disciples of Jesus, we will not be afraid to speak truth. So what were they upset about? What were they divided about? I already mentioned to you, number one, how could this man, Jesus, come down from heaven? And number two, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, we've spoken enough about the first one. The second one, I just want to dig into for just a little bit so we can kind of understand what's going on here because this teaching is what really drove the wedge into people because not only did they not understand it, but it, it sounded like he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be more than just some man. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. What does this mean? Now understand, remember in verse 54 he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Remember, Jesus is using the word eat and drink to mean come to Jesus and believe. Look over there in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. How do you stop from being hungry? By eating. So he's talking about eating here. And it says, and he who believes in me will never be what? Thirsty. How do you quench your thirst? By drinking. And so Jesus talks about eating and drinking, and it's, it's, just, it's metaphorical for coming to Jesus and believing in him. Do you see that in verse 35? He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. These are parallel thoughts. Eating and drinking mean the same thing. So what is Jesus' flesh? Jesus' flesh, he clearly states, is bread to eat. What is Jesus' blood to drink? It's not wine. And I'm saying that because many look at this passage and they believe this passage is teaching the Lord's Supper. I'm going to challenge you, it's not. This isn't a, a precursor to communion. Like, if you take communion, you'll have eternal life. That was the Roman Catholic teaching. That's not what Jesus is doing here. I'm going to assure you that what he's teaching here is foundational, and the Lord's Supper is built on these foundational teachings. Yes, but this is not teaching communion. If you take communion, you can still die in your sins, church, and you can still not have eternal life in you. He's not saying, hey, take the wafer, take that cup of wine right there, and you'll live forever. No, that, that, that's, a, that's almost tantamount to, to drinking from the, the Holy Grail to have eternal life. Come on. No. So the flesh is his bread. The blood is what? See, the, Jesus is the living bread that we eat, and he's the living water that we drink. He's not the living wine that we drink. He's the living water that we drink. And so this flesh represents the bread. His blood represents the water. If we eat of the bread, if we drink of the water, which would be his blood, what are we doing? In essence, we are taking Jesus, the bread of life, the living bread, the living water, and we are taking him 
enter. We're taking him inside of us. Literal flesh, literal bread and water come into our stomach. You can't see it anymore. Jesus, in essence, is saying, this is spiritual. You can't see it. But if you believe, if you come to me, if you believe in me, that is tantamount to eating and drinking. You'll never go hungry. You'll never be thirsty. You're going to have me in you, the bread of life, the living bread, the living water is going to be in you. It's going to be like this streams of water welling up within you, and it's going to radically change you. Because why? Because God, the God that created you, who'd long to have a fellowship with you, a relationship, an intimate relationship with you, now lives in you. Everywhere you go, God is right there. If you think that you're going to sin and God won't see it and you're a follower, you're a believer in Jesus, guess what? He's right there in you. Of course he's going to see it. Nothing is hidden from him. When you do good things and nobody else sees it, the God that lives in you sees it. Actually, he doesn't just see it. He's that living water that wells up within you. The reason why you're even doing the good is because he's living in you. Because you have eaten, you have drunk of him, and he indwells you now. All the Lord's Supper is, is it takes us to the cross and uses the bread for his flesh, the wine for his blood. Those are the redemptive aspects of the cross. Jesus' body hanging on the cross, his blood, which represents his life, drained from him, and that blood now washes away my sin. When I take the bread and I take the wine, it reminds me of what Christ has done for me. What did he do for me when I ate his flesh and drank his blood? Or when I believed in Jesus, I now have life in me. That's what he's talking about. That's what they didn't get. This is a hard teaching. Well, uh, yeah, if, if you think that he's talking literally, and again, I bring you to this, that verse that I, I hope I reasonably explained, verse 30, excuse me, 55, for my flesh is real food, no, it's not like real as in literal, any more than Jesus is the real vine. He's not a literal vine. But as a vine, when you're plugged into the, when you're engrafted into the vine, all life flows through that vine. If you sever yourself from the vine, you have no life in you. You will bear no fruit. Jesus is your everything. And these Jews, they were, they were struggling with this. Man, this is too strong. It's like Jesus, he's trying to pr present himself to us like he's the answer for everything. That was too hard for him. He has life, and if you just take him in, you're, you're going to have eternal life in you, and he's going to raise you up on the last day. Well, who gave you that authority, Jesus? Chapter 5 explains that. I got into that a bit, but wow. That really sounds like the authority of God himself who has compassion for the creatures that he created who have wandered so far from him. Even the Jews, his own people, wandered so far. And they were without life. They were without hope because they were rejecting Jesus. Now, why are they grumbling? We talked about the what 
but why are they really grumbling? I, I get it. It's a hard teaching. But they were grumbling. Remember we looked at verse 60 last week? On hearing this, see, they heard it with their ears. On hearing this, many of his disciples, who are learners and therefore followers, said, this is a hard teaching who can hear it. So they were hearing with their ears, their physical ears, but they were not hearing it with their heart. They didn't get it. Who can hear this? This is hard to accept. And so they rejected it. <coughs> we learned that the reason why they did this, now remember, we see two, two words in here that are used earlier. The fact that he's speaking to his disciples, which are learners. That's what the word disciple means, learner. And they were supposed to hear it, listen to it. Let me read this verse to you one more time. Verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. This is where they failed. They had failed to really listen. They had failed to really learn. Have you ever sat down to a lecture by your parents? You did something wrong, and man, they, they just blasted you. What did you do? You're totally right. Yes. I, I, yes, absolutely. No, you dug your heels in the ground, didn't you? Come on. Yeah, there was, when you felt attacked, you dug your heels into the ground, and there was something. I mean, you may have been sitting down on the, in, uh, on the, in, uh, on the outside, but you were standing up in defiance on the inside, Right? And there was just some, there was a resistance to this. And when someone speaks hard truths to us, church, there is a tendency for us to push back. We can listen, we can hear it, but we're not really hearing it. And so these people, and that's even Christians, but these, they had been following Jesus on the outside. Some of them, as I say, for two years. And then Jesus got to this teaching, and he basically is saying... I'm going to lay this out for you. Jesus basically was saying, you, you, you've not been listening. You've not been learning from the Father because that's a prerequisite. Now, I'm going to tell you this right now. Jesus says that unless the Father draws you, you can't come to Jesus. Unless the Father enables you or grants it to you, you cannot come to the Father. And I want to tell you that there are certain aspects of God's grace that apart from that grace, the stubbornness in your heart refuses to follow Jesus. Jeremiah says it this way, the heart is desperately wicked, beyond cure, who can understand it? Theologians call this, call this prevenient grace. This is God's grace. It's the preaching of the gospel that, church, we have to listen to and we have to learn from it so that we can believe. And we have to listen and learn from the Father who's speaking through this gospel, right now speaking through Jesus. There's got to be a humility there, church, on our part in order to listen to, in order to learn 
okay, this, th- this is truth. And, and when that dawns on you, this is truth, it should break us. It should show us our in- inability and our ineptitude, our waywardness, our sin, and our struggle, our addiction to that sin that must be broken. You've tried it over and over as an unbeliever, and you constantly failed. And Jesus is saying, hey, it's because you're still not yielded. The Father can't draw you. He's not drawing you. What does it mean for the father to draw us? The Bible says that God opened Lydia's heart and she believed. And I realize there are some schools of thought that say that that's regeneration. See, God has to regenerate the heart and then you believe. I'm going to disagree with that. A number of verses we could get into. I'm not going to do that. Just go back to John 1, 12 and 13. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I'm going to say, though that is God hardened Pharaoh's heart... He didn't reach into Pharaoh's heart and hardened it. He used things on Pharaoh. Maybe his own wickedness. Maybe it was the counsel that he got that stirred up his pride. And God used those things to harden Pharaoh's heart to the ultimate good that God would display ten, not just one, but ten miracles, ten judgments in Egypt before Pharaoh was finally broken. And even then... As he thought about it, I'm not going to let them go. And he charged after them to his own demise. Dead in the Red Sea. And so, when when the Bible talks about God opening Lydia's heart, I'm not going to suggest he reached into her heart and just opened it, but that God used, just as he hardened Pharaoh's heart, which is like the opposite of opening, God used things to work in her heart the preaching of the gospel. Maybe a story that Paul used that, wow, that's me. And she related to it, and God is working. The Bible says that that the God of this age blinds the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot understand the gospel. God's grace must break through In so many aspects, he breaks through by his grace in order for our eyes to be open and we come to this understanding, yes. But apart from God's grace, we will remain in our stubbornness. We're going to be just like these Jews. We're going to be just like these disciples who turned away and no longer followed Jesus. I want to just take a moment. I want us to look at Mark chapter 4. Because the Bible tells us that God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud. That before a person comes to Christ, when it says that the Father draws them, see, that's what the Father's, the Father's drawing them in, in various aspects of his grace. But on the other hand, we are listening to and learning from the Father in order to come to him. There's an interplay between God's grace and what we do in response to that grace. And what was wrong with the Jews? Jesus tells them, stop grumbling. Stop grumbling. Because that's a sign. The Father's not drawing you. Maybe the gospel, is, is, there is, as Jesus is preaching the gospel, there's a resistance. Stop resisting. God opposes the proud. Mark chapter 4. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It says, he also said, 
This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. This is just after the parable of the four soils, by the way, which a farmer scattered seed on four different soils. So a man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. So this is not Jesus here. This is you and me. As we've scattered the seed, it starts to grow. How does that happen? You've, you've witnessed to your neighbor, and all of a sudden, he starts responding. Maybe for three years, you've shared Christ with him, and now it's like he's, he's, he's getting it. And it says right here, the farmer, he doesn't understand how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. I'm just going to stop there, and you can read more of it later if you'd like. There's an interplay here between the seed and the soil. The word of God and what God is doing and the soil of man's heart that's interacting with this soil, and the farmer says, I don't get it. You're not going to understand how God's grace works in that unbeliever. You don't even understand how he did it in your life. You can't analyze it and scrutinize it and say, yeah, I know exactly how he did it. No, you don't. God's grace interacted. You responded maybe with a baby step. God saw that humility, whatever you want to call it. God began to draw you more. And between the Father drawing and us listening and learning, he enabled you. And then suddenly it was like, I'm going to believe in Jesus. So I'm not suggesting that we're going to get this. But I'm going to tell you right now, apart from God's grace, that friend that you're, you're witnessing to cannot come to Jesus. Pray that the gospels preach to him. Pray that God would humble his heart. Pray that God would open their heart. Pray that the spirit of God would begin to speak to them, maybe even in dreams. God can do these things. But God, please step into this person's life. You did it for me. I remember when my brother was evangelizing me. I was 14 years of age. I didn't want to hear anything that he said. I could initially, I, man, there's such a resistance. Oh, I don't want, he trapped me. It's only Friday. What's he preaching to me? On, it's not even Sunday yet. Come on. This is what I'm thinking. And then as he began to speak, God just began to soften my heart. I didn't, I'm, I'm thinking, what's going on here? I began to stop looking at my watch. And I, I began to listen. And I began to realize, man, I've been trying to do this Christian thing for, well, I was 14. <sighs> And I'm not even a Christian. That's what the Spirit of God so clearly challenged me. And I realized today I need to make a decision. I am going to follow Jesus. And that's what needed to happen to the Jews here. That's what needed to happen to his disciples. But instead, there wasn't a, you know what, Jesus, could you please just explain this a little bit more? I'm not getting it. They were offended by it. Nope. Man, you are way out there, Jesus. Forget it. And they walked away, and they did not come back. And so he turns to the 12. What are you going to do? Church, I want to tell you right now that there are so many hard teachings of Jesus, so many hard things that he did. Just in John, he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. What? He says, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He referred to God as my father, and the Jews took offense at this. Remember when he cleared the temple, and they're thinking, who do you think you are? Where did you get this authority? Show us a sign that proves that you have this authority. He healed on the Sabbath. 
They felt that that would, you know, he was breaking the scriptures. They just didn't get it. Then he challenged them, you do not know my father. And in chapter 8, he even said, the devil is the father of lies and you are his children. Wow. And these were the, this was the group, we're going to look at this later, but this was the group that believed him. Not believed in him, but they believed him. But I imagine many of them from that point on just said, nope, talk to the hands, not doing it. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How unpopular a teaching is that in our day? People want a smorgasbord religion. They kind of pick and choose from the religions what they want, and they leave out the rest, and they think that they've got the truth. No, they don't. Where did their truth even come from? Other teachings of Jesus, he says, give up everything. You must give up everything to be my disciple. Oh, Jesus, that's a hard teaching. This is hard to hear. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's right here. You want to walk into it? You've got to be born again. You have to repent and believe. Repent? That means I have to, like, turn my back on my sin, but maybe you don't get it. I'm doing my sin because I love it. That's why I'm doing it. Church, you sin because you like it. You don't sin because you hate it. I'm just being honest right now. We like it. We like it too much. We like it more than Jesus, at least at that moment. Repent. That's not real popular in our day. Deny self. Take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross doesn't mean bear with your neighbor or your spouse. Take up your cross means you need to be willing to die for me. I want to ask you tonight. If a man came in here with a machine gun and pointed it at you and said, I'm going to shoot you unless you deny Christ, what would you do? But see, we want to be a good Christian, so we're just, well, you know, I, I, I wouldn't deny Jesus. And, and I so hope that that would be the case. And that's a totally hypothetical situation, by the way. But Jesus is asking, hey, who do you love more? Do you love your own life more than me? Because if you do, you can't be my disciple. You can't. He didn't give it a much. You can't. And Jesus knew that in the rich young ruler's heart. That's why he gave him such. Choose between your wealth and me. Because if you're going to follow me, there's not going to be any competition here, just so you know. Because you love your money so much, you've got to get rid of it. Now, I'm not saying that if you're going to come to Jesus, you've got to give your money all away, or you've got to give it to me. But the truth is, for this man to follow Jesus... No, he wasn't going to have, Jesus says, you know, you're not going to have two masters. So sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, and then come follow me. The guy couldn't do it. He was an addict to his money, his wealth. And of course, the teaching of hell does not fly too well 
in our society these days. These were the hard teachings of Jesus. They divided them. They, it's like they just pierced right down the middle. Who's going to really follow me and who will not? And I'm going to just tell you this, church. There's going to come a time in your life in which you will be tested. And you're going to make a decision. Am I going to choose to follow Jesus or am I not? And when I was 20 years old, that's what happened. Are you going to follow me? Or are you going to listen to the world? Because what the world had to say, it, man, it just sounds so reasonable. But then I began to listen to God once again. No way. Because you know why? Because church, I, I, I ended up saying amen to what Simon Peter said here. Do you see that? Verse 66. Jesus is asking him to the 12, do you want to leave too? Look at what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, we would have to depart from you. By the way, just like the, these other disciples, we'd have to depart from you and pursue something else. What else is in this world that can give us life, an eternal life at that? What else can satisfy my soul? What else? Who else can I turn to? What else can I turn to so that I'll never hunger again and I'll never thirst again? Nothing. You are the bread. I'm filling in, by the way. You are the bread that has come down from heaven. We have eaten your flesh. We have truly drunk of your blood. And we are full. We are satisfied. We, we do not hunger. We do not thirst because you are the satisfaction of our soul. Who else would we go to? This is the heart of a disciple. G John, excuse me. It's like when, I'm, when my kids were young. Eventually, hey, you, because the, I went through all four names of my girls. You, come here. Anyway, Peter, there we go. Peter, who else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Listen, we believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Just bear with me real quickly. Bear with me real quickly. The process of experiencing truth. I've already gone through these. Experiencing, I'm going to abbreviate, experiencing truth. He doesn't just want us to get it up here. He wants us to get it here and experience it. Theology is not just truths we get here. We get theology here and we experience theology. If you don't experience theology, you're disconnected from right theology. Theology was meant to be experienced, not just to know about. And so when you have some questions that the Bible just doesn't address, so, you know, what about the demons and angels and all of these things? Well, you know, you probably just don't need to know about that because you'll never experience it. Are you a demon? Well, let's hope not. Are you an angel? I doubt it. So you're not going to experience it. Know a little bit about it because when the angels fell, they were disqualified forever. Okay, I, I get that. So experiencing truth, number one, I just want to make sure that I get these right. We went over this. Listen and learn. Listen and learn. You've got to be humble, church. You have to be teachable when you're discovering truth. If you think you know it all, forget it. You're going to be just like the Jews, and you're going to start grumbling, and you're just going to start arguing. It's not going to happen. You have to listen, and we have to learn. There has to be a, an, at least an ounce of humility involved in there. We have to come 
to Jesus. Come to Jesus. That meaning, we have to believe. I'm going to abbreviate that, believe. You have to believe in him. There's this surrender, believe in him. Not just about, that's fact. Believe in him, that's personal. We yield to the truth. We yield to Jesus and his teachings. And then lastly, this is what Peter said. We believe and we know. There we go. That, my friends, is experiential. I want to ask you, have you experienced God? When I'm talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, after you stop freaking out and you really think about what he's saying there, have you really fed on him and taken him inside? Have you walked with him? Have you sought after him? Have you yielded to him? Have you experienced him? And through, from, from the age of 20 on, I would venture to say that I, in, in the, the last 10 years, compared to the 20 years before that, I've experienced God more. And, and, and I don't know why that happens to be the case. For me, a lot of it has to do with the financial realm, so that I, I guess, not worrying, whatever it is, but God has come through in miraculous ways. Testimony upon testimony. Different things, things that God has done to show him how much he loves me, and how trustworthy he is. And, I, and I've prayed and I've just, and God has done miracles. And I can't figure out, the only way, I, the only conclusion, fair conclusion I can come to is there is a God in heaven. And as I have leaned into him, he has done the miraculous. And I can just step back and say, wow, God, really? But can I tell you right now, there are times in which I have prayed. That hasn't happened. But, I, but I've experienced God enough to trust his word that all things will work together for my good. So I've come to the conclusion, those things that just didn't work out, it's for one reason only. God had a better plan. See, he's done things in my life. There's just no way that they happened coincidentally. Absolutely impossible. Maybe one day, and, and most of you have heard many of my stories, but there's more. And, and if I were to sit down to you, I'd love to do that to share with you. And, and I think you would kind of scratch your head and say, man, how did that happen apart from God? But what about those things that just didn't work out? At least the way I prayed. God had an ultimate good, and what I prayed just was not that. Because God is going to bring all things together for your good as a disciple as one who is seeking to know him not resisting him not saying that's just too hard Jesus the way you're calling me that's just repent that's just too hard no it's not stop grumbling that's what Jesus stop grumbling and yield your heart the father is drawing you to Jesus constantly you're you're believing and remember the Greek present believing and continuing to believe you do this every day. You trust him every day. It started when you were converted. It goes throughout your life and you experience him. Are you experiencing him in your life today? Know him. Listen, come, and know. He has such good things in store for you. Can you stand with me?